You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We would like to thank Casper and ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. You'll hear more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guests. We're joined today by Jack Barsky, whose life has been improbable, impossible, and downright fascinating. This true spy story had a very humble beginning in the most backward corner of the old East Germany. Smarts and hard work got Jack out into the world, where he started a career teaching chemistry and math at a well-known university. And then his life took a fantastic detour. Jack was recruited by the KGB and infiltrated in the United States, where he spent 10 years actively spying for the Soviet Union. He resigned from the KGB, if that's something you can actually do, and embarked on a very successful career in information management. When he was finally discovered by the FBI nine years after his resignation, his life took a yet another sharp turn. Today, Jack is a law-abiding, patriotic American citizen who's taking advantage of one last chance to live a normal life. He is the longest surviving known member of the KGB illegals program that operated during the Cold War and is the author of Deep Undercover, my Secret Life and Tangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America. Welcome, Jack. Thank you for talking to us here at SpyCast. Glad to be here. So I want to begin <clears throat> talking about luck, because luck, and sometimes good, sometimes bad, plays a pretty significant role in your story, and actually starting out where you were born. I mean, a lot of times you think about being born a certain place can shape your life. If you're born in the developing world, you have less resources than others. If you're born in certain countries, you're behind the Iron Curtain or you're in you know, the United States. How did being born in East Germany shape your life moving forward in the most basic sense? Obviously, that's your whole biography, but you know, talking more about things like making you who you were today, your right, personality. Right. Well, I... In, in my presentation, I often start out uh, w- with a, something like this, that uh, uh, life, the trajectory of your life is uh, pretty much determined by the intersection of when and where you were born. In my case, that's absolutely true because I, I am pretty much the product of the w- World War II. You know, if, if World War II didn't happen, my parents wouldn't have met because they were fleeing the, uh, the, the Russian uh, Russians coming and were trying to go, get to the West, and they wound up in the same space, so that's how I came into being. And then I wound up uh, in the, the Russian-occupied part of Germany, which made me a communist, which then you know, eventually resulted me as uh, uh, becoming a spy for the KGB. Some of the hardships of East Germany also had some 
influence on your life. It certainly made you self-sufficient. And would you say it made you a true believer at that point? Did you buy fully in to the idea of communism when you were young? 101%, uh, because that's all we ever heard. And, you know, in some, in some households, uh, you know, the, the, in, when the doors were closed, your parents or uncles, grandparents would say something different. And in, in our house, there was silence. There was politics and philosophy, religion. None of that was talked about at home. And every, everywhere else, it was communist ideology. I was absolutely a believer, even more so as I got older and, and I got a, had an interest in science and math. We were actually told that, you know, uh, the, um, the communist ideology was, had a scientific foundation. Marxism-Leninism was considered a science. Mm. And when you look at the way we were taught history, you know, it starts with the Stone Age and then it, we, we get to slavery, which was a, a certain formation in society, which was replaced by feudalism, which was replaced by capitalism, right. which was going to be replaced right. uh, w without a doubt by communism and I was going to be an active participant in, in accelerating that process and make the world a happy place. One particularly coming out of World War II where you know a lot of Americans don't like to admit this but the Soviets do the heavy lifting in they, defeating Hitler. Yes I, they did. And you know and so I, I, all the propaganda or if you want to use that word all the, um, the, the, the ideas coming out of East Germany at the time was that the, the communists were the ones that defeat Hitler. They defeat fascism. Well, it started out, first of all, that the communists also were fighting. The, the, were the only political uh, force before uh, Hitler took over that were fighting the Nazis in the streets. Mm -hmm. Now, the outcome wouldn't have been that much better if they had won, but the bottom line is they lost. And a lot of communists, uh, if they didn't manage to flee or go underground, were killed. And, you know, the most prominent of them was Ernst Thermann, the leader of the Communist Party, who was murdered by the Nazis about six months prior to the end of the war. And so now juxtapose this with uh, the fact that the United States took over the Galen organization. It was military intelligence for the Nazis. Right. I mean, to me, that was a really, really big mistake, historic mistake. The intelligence that Galen was able to provide them uh, uh, with regard to the, the Soviet army and military uh, was probably not a good counterweight to the to the damage that was done ideologically. The ammunition that we had on the east was, yeah, you see, right. you know, we are fighting these evil forces that are the successor to the Nazi regime, and and you know, at one point, the, the first American name that I remember is Eisenhower, and it was a cartoon, and Eisenhower was depicted as an evil man, and that's what I knew growing mm -hmm. up. That the Americans were evil, Eisenhower was evil, and whatever, and was, so, so I was going to fight that nonsense. Right. right. <laughs> so the name Jack Barsky is one now you've had for the longest period in your life, but it's not the name you were born with, and it's not the only name you've ever had. What what name were you born with? I was uh, born with the first name of Albrecht. That is, uh, I was named after uh, the famous uh, middle-aged painter Albrecht Dürer, and the last name was Dietrich. Very difficult to pronounce for Americans. Yeah, I, I read it and I was like, Albrecht Dietrich. Yeah, yeah well, no, that's, that's, that's the best I could do. The Hich and R sounds are difficult. Uh, do you still identify with that name or any other name? or is it? Well, when I'm in, Ger in Germany and somebody says Albrecht, I, I will turn. Mm. Uh, if I hear it here, here, I probably won't, but that does, never happens really. Uh, 
uh, I'm more Jack. I have carried this name longer than the other one. But the Germans, my old friends can't help themselves. And, yeah. and they also use my nickname, which I never liked. But I, I won't disclose what that is. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, your life leading up to when you were recruited to be a spy, you write in the book, really prepared you for being a spy. We talk about being self-sufficient growing up in East Germany with rationing other things. But you were also and are also very smart. You were studying to be a professor. And it's you say in the book that this intelligence combined with self-sufficiency made you confident, made you feel invulnerable. A lot of the perfect psychological makeup for being a spy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, sure. Uh, the, the entire enterprise of going undercover is, is a suicide mission. Nobody in their right mind should think that they can do that. But I was so full of myself, and, and I got nothing but third-party confirmation how great I was that I thought, I can do it. Mm-hmm. I can even pretend to be an American. It was a challenge. I've, all, I've always been very competitive. And when, uh, when this opportunity came up uh, and the question was raised, can, can, you, can you do it? Do you think you can do it? Just, yeah, I've got to try it. You didn't know what you didn't know at the time how no, difficult it was going to be. No, of course you didn't know. And uh, but you know, again, ultimate belief in self and confidence that anything that comes my way, I'll be able to handle because I had a uh, a track record of success. Once I started kicking in in school, I beat the crap out of the competition mm-hmm. every time, in a big way. I worked hard also. It wasn't just like intellect. You know, right. I wasn't necessarily the smartest, but I outworked everybody. And so what I did not have was a mentor, a father figure, somebody who sits you down and says, you know what, you're full of shit, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, there's this he's not doing right, and this, and, and you just stop. You're not the smartest person in the room. There's always somebody smarter than you. And, oh, by the way, uh, maybe there's a God out there who created all this stuff. None of that happened right. to me, Right. None of that happened to me. So, so I was sort of in my own bubble, believing in self. Uh, that's dangerous for a young person. It's very dangerous. Yeah. I, I want to talk about your recruitment, which began in 1970, as you're starting your fourth year in college. We can work through that a little bit, because I think our audience would be very interested to know how the KGB played recruiting you. Because it's interesting, it's somewhat slow play. They took their time very much so. to recruit you. Uh, and, and what was interesting in the book was that you were kind of given small tests to see if you had what it took. They didn't commit right. to you right away. No, they didn't. This was a mutual feeling out. Uh, uh, well, what they had in mind for me from the get-go was uh, to do undercover work. And first you need to find out, is that person qualified? Can they do it? Are they trustworthy? Can you believe them? Uh, are they reliable? And are they ideologically sound? All of this required, at least that's what they thought, required them to, to, to work with me unofficially for almost about a year and a half. Uh, interestingly enough, what they never did, they never gave me a psychology test, a personality hmm. test. Uh, that's, I'm, even today I'm scratching my head why, why that wasn't done. But, but there was one individual who worked with me for this year and a half while I was still studying and then an employee of the university, uh, who I bet you wrote every time we met, wrote a report. Right? And, uh, you know, we became really friendly. I, I told him about being shy uh, around girls. 
And I still remember, he said, you just think, remember one thing, he, he would say, they like guys. <laughs> <laughs> so he was sort of, he was older than me, but he was close enough to relate to this, uh, you know, the, the, that age. It, uh, and then they did, he did give me tasks such as uh, um, investigating in an undercover kind of fashion, like go find, there's a person who lives at a certain address, this is their name, and they have somebody, uh, a relative in the West, talk to them and find out a little more about that relative. And so I would go there, and I remember one time I would go there and introduce myself as by a different name, first name, and and I would tell them that I was doing uh, some kind of a study for the university, and if, can I ask you some questions? And I would rattle down questions that had nothing to do with with the object of, of the investigation, but eventually find a way to lead into right. that and allow the person to just spill the beans without them knowing what I was after. So I never used that t- t- technique in, in reality, but but that was one of the things. I also had to investigate objects, uh, and uh, when I took that trip to down south uh, all the way to Bulgaria, I was asked to write reports about you know my impression. I also uh, was asked to uh, profile some fellow students I don't believe that this was meant to, you know, to, to report on them and see whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. The Stasi did not, did enough of that. I think it was more like practice. Yeah, it was I thought what was interesting is they they didn't give you a lot of guidance to do this. It was more of just go do it and figure it out and on it your was, own. It was a lot of ad hoc. Uh, uh, quite quite clearly, uh, there wasn't there was no uh, sense of a sort of a curriculum, even loosely structured. Well, you've got to do this, and you've got to do some of that, and uh, a lot of it was ad hoc. Do you think that was on purpose, like they were trying to test you, or they just didn't really have a system in place for developing new agents? Well, when you think about uh, Mitrokin, uh, who, uh, who brought my name over for, out of the KGB archives, uh, he he wrote in his uh, in, in the Metrokin archives that there were six of us that were being prepared. So that wasn't a factory. They yeah. were, so you you can think that maybe the ad hoc was because of the rarity of of of, uh, of that kind of an operation. So I'm I'm guessing I'm guessing it's uh, just because it was somewhat unusual. As they prepared you to start your bigger training to work in the West. This was something when you undertook it, you had to leave everything behind. You had to almost essentially disappear as a person I did. at this <clears throat> point. And you can imagine the tradecraft is, is just kind of learning, but the, the psychology of this had to be something entirely different just to up and just say, I'm no longer this person. Yes. Um, well, there was, I was, prepared to do this because there was a there were two steps ahead of time when, when I sort of said goodbye to the world as I knew it. The hardest part for me initially was to leave Jena, the town where I studied. That had become my home. Uh, I, I was somebody there. I was already respected and I was going to have a career. Uh, I, uh, I loved playing basketball and you know, my basketball team was sort of the family that I didn't have when, when I grew up. <clears throat> And I had to leave all of that and wound up in Berlin all by myself. At that point, 
I already went undercover mm-hmm. in some sense. I still had my name, but I already couldn't tell anybody where I was working. I didn't go to, to a job every every morning. I was on my own, and so there's already a sense of loneliness and separation from the world. And then, then I did then I did two years in Moscow, which yeah. was even more lonely, and it was miserable at times. So then, going to to the United States, the only thing that changed was uh, you know a different name, and I spoke a different language. Right. But that loneliness, I actually. It was almost a relief that I could be in a world where I, you know, I could go to the movies, understand what they were doing, and then eventually start, you know, uh, interacting with people again, other than just the handlers from the KGB. Right. You did a training mission to West Berlin, and this is really to get your feet wet to right. see if you can right. handle things psychologically. Yeah. What was your first impression of the West? I mean, this is really the first time you had seen. I I still tell the people today and f- folks who who were in East and West Berlin in those days and, uh, agree with me 100%. I, it, it felt like uh, East Germany was was a movie shot in black and white and in the West they had color. It's like it was day and night, just the facades of the building and, and the way that people were dressed, it was all more colorful. Uh, not that this made a dent in my ideology, but that, that was the very first impression. And then I noticed the cops everywhere. <laughs> and, and they had light blue uniforms. They weren't as visible as the East Germans who were, were you know, dark, like bright green. But I, I saw every one of them. <laughs> and none of them were paying attention to you, but Not I imagine it, you probably oh, thought every one oh, of them it was, was right? It was a scary experience. And there's, a, there's an episode, I think that's in the book, uh, uh, if it's not, it's uh, it's interesting because uh, I once ran into a, a classmate from high school in Berlin, and uh, he spilled the beans. He said, "You know what? I was I was being trained by the Stasi, East German intelligence. Uh, I was trained by the Stasi, and I was supposed to go to to, to West Germany undercover." And then he said, "I couldn't do it. When they sent me to West Berlin, I I was so afraid I had to come right back." Hmm. So it was a it was an important test, right? Uh, because you know you, we were so prepared to know that you are in enemy territory that, that for a lot of people they just couldn't handle it psychologically. Well, I got through it, yeah. And uh, then the, they sent me one more time, and the second time I actually had to do an investigation. So I did did this knock on the door and talk to somebody, and that worked too. So that was an, an important step also for them to understand that yeah he can, he can do it. Well, you talk in the book about really needing two sets of skills when you're doing undercover work. One is like tradecraft, the old technical right, skills, right, right. and then there's the soft skills, right. like the ability to adapt to situations, to blend in, to handle things psychologically, to you know those kind of things. It, it seems that you excelled at that. Was that when did you gain the confidence that you could do that part? Well, there's a funny thing. I, uh, the the tradecraft, uh, uh, I got feedback from the folks who taught me, and I was told that uh, I was one of the best at everything that that they threw at me. That includes uh, uh, encryption, decryption, Morse code, secret writing, uh, uh, surveillance detections. All of this, I was always getting high praise. Mm-hmm. The personality thing, I never really knew. Maybe they, maybe they, you know. I I know now that I I display when I'm not tired a certain charm, and I can, you know, I'm I, people like me for the most part. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. They may have sort of 
thought about it and maybe they felt it, but they never they they never uh, reinforced that uh, with me. So and then then as I went to the United United States, I sort of manufactured an introverted personality. So I really didn't know how people relate to me, and it took a long time to figure this one out. Right. I think a lot of people might be wondering, anyone who's taken a language before in their lives, and you know, I took Spanish my entire life. I'm from Miami originally. You had to. Yep. And I took Russian in school. Oh, and I, boy. That, that's <laughs> not easy. killer. <laughs> but I, I got pretty good at accents. Like I, I, I minimized my accent as much as I possibly could, but p- people will listen and realize you don't have a German accent. And you certainly would have had one in the beginning. I wonder about the English trainings. You talk yeah. a lot about in the book about it. And, and what, what's interesting to me, and I think anyone who gets fluent in a language will understand this, it's not just about learning English, not just about learning words. It's the accent, of course, but it's like nuance in the language. It's slang. It's oh, stuff yeah. like, oh, yeah. and you talk in the book about needing to learn how to think and feel like an American. Right. I mean, you just ask about four questions in one, oh, I know. In one <laughs> sentence. So, so and we can talk about this for another half hour at least. Um, let me just uh, go to the accent. I personally can still hear it, and there's some people who can and some can't. It's not obvious, but it's not pure American. You sound like you're from Jersey to me. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, I, I know. Mean, I know. Yeah. I've been told now yeah. that I'm in Atlanta, yeah. you sound like a New Yorker. Yeah. Oh, surprise, surprise. Yeah. I lived there for, for, for many, many years. But but learning English is is actually quite hard. There's a lot of people in this world who speak English, but to, to get to a point of near perfection, uh, that, that's hard because the English language is uh, uh, diffuse. It's not very precise. You know, you look up the word, the words "get" or "do" or "can" in the dictionary, and there's three pages of it. Right. And the the other thing is the way I learned it, it was book book knowledge. So I acquired a vocabulary that was way too big, uh, and you don't know unless you live with folks who speak the language, you don't know which is the appropriate word to use. Right. And even years into my uh, my my stay in the United States, I would occasionally use a word that everybody said, what do you mean by that? Well, I read it in the New York Times some some time back, and I learned it. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, it, it, even from that point of view, it, uh, it was an almost impossible task. I got lucky in a, in a way that uh, when, when my, my first exposure to a group of people was... Uh, as part of the messenger uh, group uh, for the company I work work for, so that's a, you know, I those people really didn't care who you were, where you come from, came from, where you're going, but I was able to observe a lot and listen and and so by osmosis after a couple of years and I uh, I was a whole lot better than when I first started. Well, you had some pretty famous or infamous tutors before yeah. you came yeah. to the United States. Can you talk a little bit about? Uh, names maybe some of our, our listeners have heard of. Well, the the infamous couple were, were Lana and Morris Cohen, uh, the atomic spies, arguably uh, more effective than the Rosenbergs who were executed for what they did or possibly even didn't do because there's some questions to question to what extent uh, uh, what's uh, Rosenberg's, uh, the, the woman, what's her name? Mm-hmm. Ethel. Ethel. Uh, Ethel, what yep. she did. But anyway... Uh, he uh, Morris recruited uh, some folks uh, who 
I believe some physicists uh, who, who brought out secrets. And Lana did this famous uh, run uh, where she smuggled out stuff to, that uh, Mr. Hall gave her. Yep, Ted Hall. Ted Hall. Mm. And uh, and she talks about it. There was an interview with a, I don't know who, I think it was PBS. Mm. Uh, and it's a, uh, they, they managed to get out before they were caught. I think they would have faced a death penalty as well. Uh, and then they eventually wound up in, uh, after a, a stint in Poland, uh, they went, they were sent back to, to England and did some more spying over there, wound up in jail and then were, uh, exchanged. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I worked with them, uh, and they were the nicest people. They were wonderful and believers in the communist cause until their dying days. Naive, childlike naivete. Mm. There was this one, this one I, I'll never forget it, uh, Morris, who uh, who aged prematurely, you know, eight years in jail, will do a number on you. When we, and he had a certain cadence to his talk. I can still hear it, but he came all, all excited. He had learned a little Russian, and so he would read the front page of the Pravda, and, and he said, he called me Bruno, that was my name. He says, Bruno, Bruno, see this? Bread will be free in 1980. Well, that wasn't so exciting for me because uh, when I was there, which was in 77, bread was like 10 kopecks or whatever, yeah. you know, it cost next to nothing. But but to him, that was, a, you know, a great step towards communist nirvana. And they were so isolated and, you know, uh, they didn't speak Russian very well. They had a really nice apartment and and lived in, in one of the most upscale uh, areas of, of Moscow. They had no clue what was going right. on. No clue. So your first North American trip was actually to Canada. Yep. What was the purpose of this trip? There's a lot of interesting anecdotes from this, but uh, (laughs) you describe it or someone describes it to you as Canada's like the United States, just less people and colder. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Well, that that was as close uh, to the United States you could get without being there, right? Mm -hmm. And you just lived there for a while, listened to the language. I mean, they picked Montreal for some reason as the, the city of entry, I wouldn't have picked it. I would have picked Toronto, right? right? Uh, but um, there may have been reasons that they didn't share with me. I had some tasks also. To, uh, but three months I spent in Canada, and uh, uh, I should have not ever gotten out because I think it was the FBI or at least the Royal Mounted Police was on my, on my tail. I think the FBI eventually they, they were they were following me. They got to a point where they actually uh, found the first hotel in Montreal where I stayed, and they interviewed the the innkeepers there. And uh, FBI showed me during my debriefing a sketch hmm. of me that was done based on their description. Uh, somehow I got out. Uh, I wonder why why that was possible because they knew my name. Maybe they were just a little too late, and I had already left yeah. the country. You tell an interesting anecdote about mm. something that, to me, really kind of stood out as far as little basic nuances in culture. You'd never seen a twist-off cap before. <laughs> yes, right. And that, that, to me, is like you're sending somebody overseas. You want to know. Those little things is what can trip you up. You bet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So at my first dinner, you know, I, I get a bottle of beer, and, and I ask the, the waiter for a bottle opener and he looked at me like 
okay, are you kidding me? <laughs> and I had no idea what that look meant. And I said, so I just want to open the bottle. And then he showed me, well, you just do this. You know, here I was traveling with a West German passport. You know, they had these twist-off caps in mm -hmm. West Germany and East Germany. We didn't have them. You know, it, 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 there were a few other things. One of them, if I may jump ahead, because oh, absolutely. That, that's, quote-unquote, the funniest one. Yeah. So um, and that's in New York. Um, so in, in Moscow, a uh, pack of cigarettes, the most expensive cigarettes, was 40 cents. Uh, so that was really cheap. Uh, and some others you could get for 20 cents. Uh, bread and cigarettes were cheap. And so it was not unusual that if you were, say, standing at a bus stop, that for a stranger to ask you for a cigarette, uh, it would just come up, and, and, and you give them one or two, and, and no problem. Uh, so so I'm, I'm in New York maybe for a week. I'm walking uh, down Fifth Avenue past Bryant Park, which I know now and f found out sometime after, was a... Uh, hangout for small drug dealers. Uh, and so I'm walking down there, so some fellow approaches me and he whispers, smoke, smoke, smoke. <laughs> and I hand him, I had a, I had a uh, pack of Kent and I hand him a couple of cigarettes. And he looked at me, oh, are you jiving me? And he didn't <laughs> say it, but he yeah. looked at me like really weird. I had no idea what that look meant. Yeah. Uh, later I found out why he was trying to, you know, Sell me marijuana, right? right? <laughs> and so there's those cultural nuances, I guess. Yeah. I can, that, that, who, how could you possibly know? I mean, that's not something no, that's in the KGB no, manual. No, you can't. Yeah. And, uh, and so there, there's this, uh, this notion out there in the public uh, with some people that, that the Russians actually built an entire city, a model of a city, to train people how to be Americans. Well, if that existed, they never let me in. <laughs> And even if they had, you know, they, there's, still, there's no information about these little things that just make Americans Americans. That's you know? right. And even even the, the resident agents uh, uh, who came back from the United States, you know, those employees of the the embassy or even United Nations, they didn't know. They didn't know. So I, 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 I liken this to, say, somebody who, who was into fish. Uh, and those guys were looking... Uh, at life in America as if you look f from the outside of an aquarium and you watch the fish and then they were trying to teach me how to be a fish right well that doesn't work but right because they, they never really those folks never integrated with American society they were outsiders right you know, they interacted with Americans but you don't learn how to live one like that mm. let me ask you about execution mode can you tell me a little <laughs> bit about that I think that that might be interesting to the listeners about you know yeah, how you go. Nothing to do with killing. <laughs> no, 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 no. I got yeah, right. Yeah, yes. We'll, uh -huh. we'll talk about the Americans a little bit later. But one thing that certainly separates you from from Philip Jennings is that you didn't go killing everybody you saw. Um, <laughs> we'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. 
Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. How do you go about, go about getting yourself psychologically amped up for doing something as dangerous as you're, I mean, for most Americans thinking operating in Moscow undercover under a fake name would be something incredibly dangerous for an American agent. How do you, how do you get yourself in that right mindset? There's a psychological numbness that, uh, sort of overcame me and, and I pretty much disabled my brain. You know, normally, you know, there's always something going on here, but uh, for those moments, the only thing I allowed in there was, were the thoughts, what needs to happen next? So there was no, you know, thinking about the past or the wife that I had just left or anything like that. It was just like narrowly focused on the task at hand. Hand, you got to get through this, and you do this, 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 and this. And when I was through that, those particular moments, such as you know, entering the United States or crossing borders here and there, uh, or even even uh, the, the time when I thought I left my girlfriend who then became my wife for the last time when you know at that point you know I d- didn't allow myself to think anymore because I needed I had a focus on it on the task that was to be done and only that did this come innately or does it yes. something you learn somewhere no no, or, yeah. no 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 there was nobody ever told me this 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 is sort of like how I approached it yeah it, well, it came in handy in May 1978. Your life changed forever. Uh, Moscow decided to send you to the United States. Uh, and this is when you got your name. So who was Jack Barsky? He was a young boy. And, and uh, actually, um, I have a picture of, of, of oh. this, this young man. Uh, he, he was a very good-looking young boy. He died from, uh, I think, a very uh, 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 vicious uh, strand of tuberculosis at the age of almost 11 and there's a there's a graveyard not too far from here where his gravestone still is and and that's where a a resident agent found that information photographed it sent it back and and it was decided that somebody should try to get that boy's birth certificate and and somehow that agent was able to to main uh, to obtain a birth certificate posing as this boy's father mm. have you ever visited the grave site uh, I have not, I, have I, not. I, I've seen a picture no. what what was interesting to me was it wasn't just about getting a name the KGB essentially developed an entire backstory because you're appearing as an adult yeah in the United States yeah. you, you needed a history I mean we talked today about so how, how difficult social media makes doing these kind of things because sure. everybody's got yeah. a Facebook profile and everything yeah. else yep. Yep. but you still need to actually have a life yeah. before this. Were you involved in that, or did the KGB just hand you over a no, dossier? No, I, uh, well, I got some materials that, uh, in, in this case, it was somebody from New York. Uh, the person went around and uh, took pictures of places where I grew up, uh, elementary school, middle school, high school. Uh, also found a place where I worked for a while, sort of... Uh, 
bringing into play the fact that uh, I knew some chemistry, so mm -hmm. there was a chemical factory that was conveniently destroyed. Uh, so I still remember the name of the George Luters and Company. So uh, I got all that material, and based on that and the fact, you know, facts that were on the birth certificate, we started concocting some stuff. And what I, what I, I wrote about six pages worth of things that I quote unquote remember about my life. And uh, a lot of that I carried over from Germany, but you know, but I took, for instance, friends. Uh, teachers, I changed the names mm -hmm. to make them English-sounding names. But at least, if somebody were to ask me, so, you know, you, your first teacher, what, what did she look like? I had, right. I would describe the German uh, person. It can't be a complete lie. It's got to be no, something you, based right, on some you reality. Have to, you, you have to hang it on to something. Uh, so, it was six page, pages worth of data. It, it also had me uh, disappear. You know, I dropped out of high school because I didn't have a high school diploma, mm -hmm. and and so, uh, and then then my 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 mother died, and I was all depressed, and I disappeared from the world, and I worked on a farm for so many years. That also helped with, when when it came to applying for a social security card because uh, farm workers were at that point still not subject to the social mm -hmm. security administration. So so it was. Uh, it took quite a while to put this all together and it was and it were like fundamentally at least three people who worked at it the, the fellow who took the pictures and got the initial information the fellow that I worked with and myself but most of it was really my idea let me ask you about documents since you brought that up I I want to ask you once about a, what I thought was a very funny story about when you arrived in Chicago, <laughs> and you were William Dyson at that point, yeah. and it was a lot more difficult than you thought it would be to eliminate William Dyson, especially yeah. no one had really taught you how to get rid of a no, passport no. before. I, well, you, these things I was told, you know, they they take a lot of effort to make. I, I, I once invalidated a passport by... By taking, uh, I was always supposed to take Aeroflot flying into Moscow, and one time I took Alitalia, and I got hammered for that. And my my handler says, "Don't you ever do that again? These things we can't use that passport again, uh, that name because it's now on record as right. having flown into Moscow, and these are very hard to do." So, I guess they didn't have enough uh, uh, of, of these passports for me to to practice how to <laughs> how to destroy one. They, they were flame retardant. <laughs> And so it he tried burn. to burn. <laughs> it was a, when I tried to burn it. It was an acrid smell that filled the, the bathroom there. So that's that doesn't work. The picture wouldn't burn either. So I eventually, and I had a pair of scissors. I started cutting them into small pieces and flushing them down the toilet. And then uh, uh, I had some some um, uh, deodorizer for for the room that I sprayed around. But it, there was still a residual smell. Yeah. But that place, you know, it, it smelled anyway. So it was, yeah. it was a, it was one heck of a dump I picked for my f first night. Uh, documents are really the key to establishing your credibility and your cover. Uh, there was a plan for getting to d documents, and the holy grail at the end of his U.S. passport. That's right. But you had to work your way up to that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Probably without. I mean, it could take two hours to talk about that. But in a kind of yeah, well, a that, shorter that, version. That was that was actually uh, uh, a rather specific plan. It was very, you know, it was very detailed uh, in, in its uh, in its planning and how I should execute on it. Uh, the passport was the crown jewel, but to get to a passport, you need to 
you need to do some things ahead of time. The first thing would be a driver's license, but in order to get a driver's license, in those days you needed to have a birth certificate and then some other ID. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that list of some other ID was a library card, so that was supposed to be easy. You just go to the library and say, yeah, I want a library card, and guess what? Then it wasn't easy because they wanted proof of address. I lived at a hotel. Well, that wasn't. I couldn't give the hotel as an address because that's not really. Or they wanted. They wanted to uh, you see an electric bill or something that proved that I lived in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it took me a while to to get over that hurdle. I eventually got uh, a membership in the Museum of Natural History that had my name, and I could put the address on it. And that was accepted by a librarian in Brooklyn. So from then on, it, it went easy. Right. The, the, the driver's license was, was a piece of cake. Yeah, you prepared like crazy for the driver's license, and it was just, yeah, here you go. That was a piece of cake. Uh, the social security card was one of the more scary moments because I had to go in for an interview. Mm-hmm. And I obviously anticipated the question, so how come you don't have a card? So... You know, I dumbed myself down to a point where I, you know, I, I rubbed soap into my eyes to make me look red and, you know, and, and didn't shave. And, you know, I looked like, I tried to look like somebody who just fell off a potato truck. <laughs> and I, I res- responded to questions in, with one or two words, which apparently was very convincing. So maybe I should have taken up acting when I was young. <laughs> and so that, that went... In execution, it went very smoothly. So now I needed to get a job, and I finally got a job. And and after a year of working on that job, it was we were we were going to go for the passport. That's where big major hiccup. That yeah. big hiccup, and that that, that was uh, a mistake, a planning mistake. That uh, in hindsight, we should have we should have known better. I practiced uh, filling on the uh, the application in Moscow. They had one and said, well, this is what you write. And I followed that to a T. There's two flags that, uh, uh, that alerted the agent who looked at the application. A, I didn't, because it was not nece- necessary to fill out. I didn't fill out uh, where I was going to go and when I was going to go right. leave the country. And secondly, I, I wrote a profession, bicycle messenger. Well, I should have written independent contractor or something like that and should have said Jamaica in July. Right. That would have been okay. So he, re- he, he saw that, and apparently they probably had a checklist of some sort. And, say, and he said that. He said, um, Mr. Barsky, we have some doubts about your ID. Could you please fill out some uh, uh, secondary uh, uh, questionnaire? So I take the questionnaire back to the back, uh, and I confidently figure out, oh, name, address, no problem. High school graduation, what high school did you go to? At that point, I knew the gig was up. Right. I couldn't possibly write down the, the school that was in my legend because I didn't graduate from that school. And that would be easy enough for them to check. You yeah. bet. And so I... I managed to grab my application and, and my documentation and run away. So I didn't run, but I stormed out, like, angry. I said, I, I, actually, what I said, you know, I'm going to use the S word again, mm-hmm. make sure that my wife doesn't listen to this. <laughs> uh, so I, I went up to the, uh, to the window, and, and I said to the agent, I don't need this shit. And, you know, just pretended to be annoyed. Yeah. 
Uh, and uh, then I was worried that somebody might follow me, but nobody did. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, at a certain point, you couldn't be a bike messenger forever. And you had a, not only did you have a chemistry degree, but you were a professor of chemistry back yeah. in Germany. But that didn't count in the United States because nope. you couldn't tell anybody nope. that you had a degree. So you had to get an American degree. And right. it wasn't like you're going to get into NYU or Columbia with nope. a, as a ex, you know, farmhand. So you went to City College because they allowed you to go with essentially a GED at that point. Right. <clears throat> so you start as a freshman at City College, which is a great school, but eight years earlier you were a professor right. of chemistry. Yeah. How, that, it almost seems kind of comical. I, I, I would laugh going back to be a freshman now, taking a freshman history class when yeah. I used to teach it myself. Well, How surreal was that? Well, there were, there were some courses that were uh, obviously new, like economics, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that was good, but some others I just uh, breezed through with no, without a problem. I took chemistry 101. <laughs> well, calculus too, right? Uh, calculus yeah. 1, 2, and 3. Yeah. Now, I had taught calculus at a much more advanced level in Germany than what 1, 2, and 3 delivered there. So, uh, yeah, and I managed to complete the whole thing in three years and then, you know, ace the whole program, which... Which was a bad mistake. That was one of the funniest. I had to put the book down <laughs> laughing. One of the funniest stories. So one thing, you got a 99 in your calculus class. How, how, do, yeah. how did you get a 99 and not a 100? Did you, like... Yeah, it <laughs> sucked. <laughs> so, but the story of... You were too good of a student. Yeah. Because you sure. ended up having the best GPA right. in your class, which and, meant what? And there was another, uh, another cultural... Uh, a black mark, some ignorance there. I didn't know that you actually, when you when you have that high a GPA, you might wind up uh, valedictorian. And yeah. It requires you to talk yeah. and get out in public. And uh, and it's a story because you're not a 22 year old college student. So right. the press may have picked up on the fact that right. It, yeah. and why didn't they? Not even not even the college paper uh, picked up on. Talk that. about luck. Well, divine providence, yeah. maybe, but I don't know. But yeah, you, you want to call it luck, and I, I, I call it it was uh, God's protective hand over me. It's like I was not yet to be found out. Yeah. <laughs> There's another great story there about you. You actually, as a English as a third language for you, a second language for you, ended up teaching a young Hong Kong yeah, right. student to learn English. He's a very successful attorney in New York City now. He, he made Columbia Law Review, and I had some interaction with him uh, in, uh, uh, on email. He, and he, I forgot, this, I think the L is the Chinese people can't uh, pronounce mm-hmm. L, and he, he wrote me, if it hadn't been for you, I would still pronounce certain words in a certain way. A very smart kid. Well, you said for his Columbia Law School application, he wrote his essay yes. about you. About me. About the nice American who right. helped him learn yeah, English. Well, yes, and I, I used some of the same techniques that I that I used to, uh, you know, get to to do phonetics exercises. I found a book and said, "Well, we're going to do this." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So once you graduated, you actually now had a legitimate, legitimate quote unquote American college degree, and that's when you got yeah. your job at MetLife. Right. As a solid and rewarding job, did this start to change? Is this where your perception of America began to change or your ideological framework? Yeah. Began to work? Because you actually talk about in the book 
that it used to be at one point the job was getting in the way of your intelligence work, but at some right. point it shifted well, yeah. to uh, where your intelligence work was actually getting in the way of what you thought was a rewarding career. All right, so first of all, I, I like programming. Uh, for the first time, uh, I could do something intellectually challenging uh, on a daily basis. That was really, uh, I was home again with that, in that regard. But what, what also happened was that, so here I was now working for one of those evil insurance companies, right. and it, they were really nice to you. You know, and the, my colleagues were great, and the company treated you well. We had free lunch. We could actually you could eat lunch, breakfast, and dinner there if you want. So no free bread in Moscow, <laughs> but you got free bread at MetLife in New York City. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, it it <clears throat> it clearly disabused me of the notion of, of of the evil Americans, and I, you know, I was still looking for them. I couldn't find any, you know, other than you know, there's, there's individuals who, right. but they happen everywhere. They happen to. So, so, yeah, and uh, the other thing that happens, uh, at IT jobs are pretty demanding, uh, and I was on call. You know, I would get calls at night, and sometimes I had to work late and weekends, and I also had to do the spy stuff, and that was time-consuming. Mm-hmm. And it, I got really sometimes annoyed with doing the spy stuff because I had a real job. Right. So that's that, that was, it wasn't a flip overnight, but it's a slow progression in right. that direction. I want to talk a little bit about what the the Soviets wanted you to actually collect for them. Uh, a lot of what they asked you to do was to look at science and technology intelligence, and this is during the Reagan period. This is during Star Wars. Um, was in the shows and in history and everything else. They, you know, we read that Gorbachev and the Soviets were obsessed with Reagan and Star Wars. Did this come across? Did you get from Moscow Center this idea of we need to know what's happening for American science and technology? Well, uh, minor correction. The, the, the science and technology angle was brought to me only my, during my last visit after uh, to Moscow after I was here for, for already eight years. Okay. It was the first time that I, uh, that I was introduced to somebody from a different... Uh, I think directorate or department. I don't know. That was science. Mm-hmm. The o- the other folks I worked with were political intelligence. Okay. So so this fellow uh, we met and he he was quite honest. He said, you know, we're hurting. We need we we need to catch up. So whatever technology you can you can find, you get your hands on, you know, send it our way. So I didn't find more than a set of computer programs. Uh, no idea whether they were ever used. I sort of doubt it because it, it, these these were programs that help help organizations uh, run their business. Right. You have to have a structure uh, that goes with the way this program wants right. to op- operate. What, what would you say your biggest collection coup? Like, what what was the the most important piece of information that you were able to collect for the Soviets? in your decade working I, for KGB? Honestly, I can't tell because it, it may well be uh, one, two, or three of the individuals that I um, uh, that I described and fingered to, as a possible recruit, but they would never tell me. Absolutely. Not, not, even, not even a hint as to whether they even tried to recruit one of them. So, um, therefore, there's, there's something open-ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably in, in the archives of the KGB, you would find the answer. 
other than that, personally, uh, I didn't really right. manage to collect a lot of inf uh, important information. Well, there's an interesting, you have about a paragraph about this, about a mission they ask you to do, and that's actually the only one they allowed you to choose if you're going to do it or yeah. not. They go up yeah. to New Hampshire to look for a dead drop site. Right. You don't know exactly who it's for, but you have a pretty decent idea of who it might have been for. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, well, I think at the time there were Aldrich Ames and, and Robert Hansen uh, were still embedded in, in, in the CIA and FBI, respectively. And I can only imagine it was was one of the two because they were hot commodities and probably what they thought uh, they should avoid direct contact with resident agents. If 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 somebody like me is in the middle, uh, well, they wouldn't follow me. They didn't. The FBI had no reason to follow right. me, right? Uh, they would follow uh, their agents, and typically, you know, they they were pretty good at at. Uh, 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 Shaking their tails. I know that because you know every operation that required somebody to. That, I did several dead drop operations here, and every one of them uh, worked, mm -hmm. with the exception of the very last one. But that means they were able to, you know, free themselves. Right. I, but anyway, the risk was probably still there, as opposed to me being in between. Right. And, and they never followed through. Interestingly enough, this was the only time where they asked me if I was willing to do that. Mm. And they didn't give me any more background, so why would I even say no? Right. You know, you have to go to New Hampshire, so no problem. Find it, You know, pick up a suitcase, why not? But who would put the suitcase there? That was the, that was, that was the reason why they asked me. Right. So, but, you know, they disclosed just very little. You know, I, I was mostly in the dark. Let me ask you about 1985. Because in the United States, it's the year of the spy. This is when spies were being arrested left and right. And you were, at that point, I guess about seven years into your time yeah. as an illegal for the KGB. Did that shake your confidence at all? Did you? Was that a year that we said, uh-oh, am I, I next? I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> I, have to, I have to tell you, there may well be something that my mind is block, blocking yeah. out. There's, a, there's, there's at least one other thing that... I was surprised that I couldn't remember. It was absolutely something that you should remember. And then uh, the FBI brought it to me and says, we have it on record that you did this, this, and this. And I, for the life of me, I can't remember even today. Hmm. I, can't, I don't even know who, the, who, who, who did they catch in 87. <clears throat> well, 85 was John, oh, 85. John Walker. Oh, Walker, and, yeah. yes. You know, I remember a little bit about this. No, that didn't yeah. bother me. Well. I, I, was, I was at that point, I was so... Uh, sure that I was I, I was okay uh, unless I did something <laughs> risky uh, more more risky than say graduating as valedictorian right. uh, if I lived my life normally I I was sure that I'll be fine and I yeah. didn't think about defectors and that kind of stuff right you don't think about this. Right? Yeah, no. You know, yeah. If you, if you, it's, it's useless. If you think about it, you just you, you, it's, it's, it, it, it serves no purpose. So you, you, those thoughts, you, I didn't let enter my mind. By the end of 1988, you actually got the emergency signal to leave mm -hmm. from the KGB. What, what made them decide to pull you at that point? Well, they didn't tell me specifically, and I still haven't found uh, uh, where they would have... Uh, gotten that idea from that my cover was about to be blown 
but that's what I remember. They said, you know, you've got to come home because you're in danger. Mm-hmm. Your cover is either blown already or it will be blown soon. Uh, and that I got in a, in a, a encrypted radiogram in, in addition to that red dot that was uh, this, the emergency sign. I really, once reading that dot, I was supposed to make a beeline for the place where I had hidden the, the emergency documents and then go right into Canada from where I would be exfiltrated uh, back uh, behind the Iron Curtain. And this, this wasn't like take your time and no, no. pack. No. This is you're supposed to go straight there. That, that was yeah. part of what we called the communication plan. That was the emergency procedure. And I had actually, uh, I have actually um, investigated you know, how easy or hard it might be to, to cross into into Canada. In those days, it was really easy. You mm-hmm. walk across the bridge uh, there at Niagara Falls, right. and the, the Americans wouldn't even look at you. And I had uh, probably forged Canadian documents, so but I didn't do it. And, uh, and what, was, made, what made you stay? My, my daughter, Chelsea. She's 29 now. She, uh, she, uh, she was a year and a half, and uh, uh, I just... Uh, that was the first time in my entire life that I felt unconditional love for somebody else. When unconditional love it means you can't do wrong and I don't need anything back, I just love you. And, and so uh, it's a very trite statement, but in this, in this situation it's, it's appropriate. Love conquers all. You know. Well, you had, you had other kids at that point, but you had never seen them grow up. You, know, you didn't see oh, it. Yeah, I had two. That's not true. I had two. <laughs> I mean, but you hadn't lived That's with right. them when they were growing. This is no. the first time you no. had a child that you saw yes. from birth and, growing and up. That makes for uh, for a man that makes all, all the difference yeah. in the world. When you see uh, your son uh, once for three weeks, once every two years, and I met him, I saw him like when he was um, one, three, and five. Uh, that was just. You know, he was also a sickly child at mm-hmm. one, uh, uh, and uh, there was just no, there was no bonding going right. on. Uh, whereas, you know, when that, when every day you see this little thing that looks looks at you and you know she's dependent on you, and she has the biggest eyes. I mean, serious. She has she has huge eyes, and she was a pretty pretty girl, like doll like pretty girl, and so then I fell in love with her. You couldn't just say, I'm not leaving. Screw you, KGB. No. But the plan you came up with was in, ingenious and a little disturbing at the same time. How did you get out of going back? What did you tell well, the I, Soviets? Well, I, I wrote this Dear John letter in secret writing. Dear comrades, uh, uh, I understand that you want me to come back, but uh, I have decided to stay back because I have contracted AIDS and this, the United States is the only place where I might be able to get treatment. I then also described the the chain uh, through which I may have acquired this, this virus because there was a girlfriend I had for a while whom I reported on, and so what I told them to make it more credible that she had a drug-addicted boyfriend and had, got the, had gotten the virus herself, and that's how I got it. And they bought it. And they were terrified of AIDS at the point. This is like the perfect thing to tell well, them. Yeah. Wouldn't you? I mean, yeah. in, in those days, uh, no. they, you know, there was a lot of myth around the disease, how you could catch right. it. And they were afraid to, to let AIDS into the country, for sure. Uh, we, I remember a conversation 
back at the center where one of the uh, my handlers uh, you know indicated to well you see this this is this is what they what they gotten into it's a, uh, it's it's um, a sign of the decay of capitalism and uh, right. we just got to make sure we can we don't let this in here let me ask you about the end of the cold war um you were in the United States when the Berlin Wall came down, when it collapsed. Yes. How did you feel watching, basically, at that point, your country dissolve mm -hmm. by 1990, certainly? Uh, and, of course, the next year, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the KGB. Right. Uh, you know, here in the United States, did you celebrate it like the rest of us did? <laughs> or was it, you know, was it a bittersweet moment to where you already kind of come over to wanting to stay in the United States by that point. I'm it's sitting I'm sitting in my living room <clears throat> in Ozone Park and I'm watching TV. A room I still remember like was yesterday had a lavender carpet that I put in myself and I'm looking at this and I am emotionally detached. Hmm. It wasn't didn't have any meaning to me anymore. Uh, I didn't think it through. I had no, you know, it, it, it didn't impact my life. I had decided to stay here. I would never go back to Germany. So therefore, and I didn't really do a whole lot of, uh, you know, investigating as to, you know, the, the, the information that came out. I did later when the Internet uh, became a good research tool. I started, excuse me, digging into uh, East Germans' past, and what I found was pretty horrifying. Uh, uh, and when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was even less of an event. Right. Mm -hmm. So you thought you were free and clear. Yeah, very, but very much so. you didn't know that the FBI had started to pay a little attention to you a little bit later in 1993. Right. Um, what I thought was interesting was that they knew that you were working for the KGB at some point. Uh but they had difficulty at first getting a warrant to put a listening device in to kind of check you out. And I think this right. certainly shows how little you were doing at this point. Uh, what did the judge say to the FBI when they asked well, for a warrant? That, that also gives you an indication that the, the FISA court uh, nowadays is in the news, uh, how, uh, how, how not easy it is to spy on Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently the judge was telling them, well, uh, that, that I... Even even though I wasn't an American, but they couldn't prove that I was a spy, which is like a catch twenty two, right? Uh, but but the judge was ready to grant me the same rights as as if I were an American. It was like really weird and yeah. frustrated the FBI yeah. no end. Um, well, it was hard for the FBI to show that you had done anything, right? Even right, if, right. Even if they knew you were a trained KGB that's, that's agent, correct. there was no spying you had been no. doing. Yeah. And and. All they had on me, at the, I didn't know that, but uh, that was this close to me much later. Uh, all they had on me was that I was in the country illegally, period. So they could have, uh, I think this, this at the, the maximum sentence for that was about five years, mm -hmm. not 30. When, when did you know that they were on your trail? Did you have a hint or was it just when no, no hint, the FBI showed up? At yeah, your I, tour? Wasn't, I wasn't looking, you know. Yeah. I, you know, I have this uh, back and forth with my friend Joe Riley who was the lead agent uh, we did we played that out in front of an audience the other day uh, I, I told him that if if i was still looking i would have known and he said maybe not because we were really cautious now if you go through my apartment uh i will know that you were there mm -hmm. 
there's some some subtle signs yeah, that telltales even, yeah mm-hmm. yes that that even the most uh thorough uh, uh agents will miss and uh well maybe the surveillance detection wouldn't have worked because joe told me they stayed far back and you know at any time so in other words they had me at a distance which means they even if they had done something they wouldn't have known right right it's like Catch-22 there yeah. also. Is, yeah, you want to not be seen, but right. you want to be able to observe. Right. Well, for instance, the, the, the brush buys, uh, you know, uh, handovers, it, you know, it takes only a few seconds yeah. in a dead zone, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, uh, I really, I didn't, I, I didn't at all pay attention to anything going around, going uh, on in my environment, and even, even when... There were new were new owners next door, which was actually FBI agents. I didn't pay attention to anything. I did my job. I played with my children. Blah blah blah. Uh, So I didn't know to answer the question. I didn't know until they said hello, and that's another moment that uh, I recall as if it were yesterday. Well, I mean, that that what Joe Riley said to you—that it doesn't have to be the worst day of your life. I mean, that that seems. Mm -hmm an extraordinary way to approach somebody that you know has been an illegal spy in the side of the, the United States. Yes. Uh, he, he left the door open because they, they wanted... He was, he was out to get my full cooperation from the get-go because, because he was convinced that I would... That was, he came up to that conclusion because he observed me and he knew that uh, uh, I loved my children and so now he he wanted to make sure that I knew that there was an avenue to to get out of this somehow. But so that's why he he opened the door a little mm-hmm. bit. I wasn't sure for about three months that I wouldn't go to jail. It was a hint I might not go. But you know the lot. He even if he hadn't said that, you know, that's from from his perspective. Even if he hadn't said that at that point, I knew that. The only way to get out of this mess is to, you know, spill the beans. And I had I had no more reason to, to hold back anyway. Let me ask you in the most broad sense, because I know there's only, you can't say everything, but what what did you provide the FBI? What what did you let the, why were they so happy to have you as a source? Well, uh, a lot of, a lot of operational stuff. I had no names. I couldn't give away. Right, right. You're so detached and so compartmentalized. Yes, and yeah. Right. Uh, even uh, the the last uh, cipher I used, I I was able to recreate for the NSA. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, also, and that came to me only in hindsight, the knowledge that there wasn't another mole. And the government that was that was important to know too. Were you using one-time pads, or were you using a cipher that you reused again and again? Uh, for eight years, I used the manual method. Okay. Uh, the I used two of them. Uh, they were I was told they were good for about two hundred uses, and and after the first one expired after four years, and I was taught another one. And after eight years, there was just not enough time, so they gave me one-time yeah. pad. And you were radioing messages, or were you leaving dead drops? I mean, you know, getting a little wonky with some of the tradecraft stuff here. <laughs> well, uh, my the communication path to the center was through secret writing. I 
was at first I had two convenience addresses, so I could write two letters uh, per month, and then I had only one that went to South America. They didn't have a second one, so I was limited to one a month. And when I had, there were occasions when I had too much information, so I would write it down, uh, take pictures, and use a dead drop to <clears throat> to hand over the the cartridge. Um, the communication in my direction was all shortwave radio, exclusively with the exception of, of science, but I never mm -hmm. got, a, got anything, in, uh, any meaningful communication other than shortwave. <clears throat> I I've, could ask you another hour's worth of questions, but I want to wrap it up with this, and I think uh, this question may be something that listeners are thinking about. If one of your kids came up to you today and said, Dad... I want to work for the CIA. What would your advice be? Would, would you would you be favorable to that? I know you the, the visitors the information. You are a U.S. citizen. You have a real U.S. passport in your right. name, right. legitimate. Uh, you are as patriotic as the rest of us. What what would what if you what if one of your kids wanted to go into an intelligence work themselves? You know that's a that question. Uh, uh, I was never asked. You know, there's another question that I... <laughs> this, you can't see me, but I'm doing uh, yeah, the celebration uh, dance. Yeah. That, that, um, I was asked the question, questions, you know, would, would you tell people, uh, would you advise people that it's okay to go undercover? And, and that that is a straight-out no without hesitation. But CIO, CIA work... Is, or, or intelligence work at all. I mean, well, maybe they want to be an analyst in NRO or... I It's... I would say it depends on the individual, yeah. uh, and it depends upon what kind of work it might be. It could be just an analyst. You're sitting at your desk, and that's all you do. Uh, but it's interesting, and it's necessary. And unfortunately, um, in, it, and this has been going on as long as I remember, since World War II, the intelligence community has gotten black eyes uh, and been beaten up quite a bit and has occasionally misbehaved. Uh, but uh, I, I think we, we are doing our country a disservice to, to try to, uh, to put a lot of obstacles in the way of folks who, who try to, to do their best to protect us. So Good I'd point. say, yeah, give it a try. <laughs> But don't go undercover. Yeah. <laughs> We'd like to thank ZipRecruiter and Casper for their sponsorship of SpyCast. Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash first, and you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting Casper.com slash SpyCast and using the code SpyCast. Well, speaking of undercover, Jack Barsky is the author of Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Tangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America. This book is available wherever great books are sold, including the Spy Museum retail shop. Uh, Jack, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We, we've been chatting several times over the phone. It's nice to finally meet you in person. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at INTL Spycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org 
and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.